Alrighty, welcome everyone to the Godcast, episode 15, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, again. Uh, we are very excited to have to be joined by uh, Joseph and Karina, who are part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, they have helped us on our, I think it was our, um, um, wait, actually, I don't know what the exact number of our episode was, Eight, yeah, episode 8, uh, which was also called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, uh, given that there's so much information about the religion, about the church, we want to do a second episode. Uh, so that being said, we're just going to simply jump right into our you know, interview question. So we touched on the Book of Mormon a little bit um, in our first episode. Uh, so we were wondering what would be a good maybe like five-minute summary of it, because we know that there's a lot of um, interesting figures in the book. As an example, I actually listened to—I was listening to part of it on YouTube a while ago, and I caught the beginning of it in which you have— uh, Nephi and uh, Lehi. So, what what are some of the uh, figures in the Book of Mormon, and what would be a general like summary of how the events go from like start to finish? Basically, how I think of the Book of Mormon, I think like it's at the same time period as the Bible, but it was what was happening in the Americas. So, and the Book of Mormon is about a thousand years from 600 BC to 480, 480. Um, and it starts with a family, uh, Lehi and his wife have a few kids and one is Nephi and Sam, Laman, Lemuel, so there's a few of them. But anyway, they start and they live in Jerusalem actually, and they follow God's commandments and they start to come to the promised land, which was the Americas. And there's just the story. There's several stories of like Nephi breaking his bow. And there's some where they have to go back and get the golden plates. And this is where they start keeping track with the golden plates and, or also known as the Book of Mormon. And it gets passed down generation to generation of his family and, or some friends and there are some that are good and some that are wicked. And, but the most important event in the Book of Mormon was when Jesus came and taught the people in the Americas after he died in, uh, in the Bible. It was the same time period. It was about like 30-something A.D. And he taught the people. And that's like the most important part of the Book of Mormon. And then later it just was passed down through a bunch of people. And Mormon, who the book is named after, he was a great military warrior, and he wrote a bunch of accounts in the Book of Mormon. And then Moroni was the very last, and he was his son, and he finished, he finished off the book and buried it for Joseph Smith to find hundreds of years later. And I really like the introduction to the, um, to the Book of Mormon. It, it has a really good, like... I guess, introduction or summary. So I'll just read it, parts of it. Um, the Book of Mormon is a volume of Holy Scripture comparable to the Bible. It is a record of God's dealings with ancient inhabitants of the Americas and contains the fullness of the everlasting gospel. The book was written by many ancient prophets by the spirit of prophecy and revelation. Their words written on gold plates were quoted and abridged by a prophet historian named Mormon. The crowning event recorded in the Book of Mormon is the personal ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ among the Nephites soon after his resurrection. It puts forth the doctrines of the gospel, outlines, outlines the plan of salvation, and tells men what they must do to gain peace in this life and eternal salvation in the life to come. 
We invite all men everywhere to read the Book of Mormon, to ponder in their hearts the message it contains, and then to ask the Father, and to, then to ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, if the book is true. Those who pursue this course and ask in faith will gain a testimony of its truth and divinity by the power of the Holy Ghost. Those who gain this divine witness from the Holy Ghost will also come to know by the same power that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that Jesus, that Joseph Smith is his revelator and prophet in these last days, and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Lord's kingdom, once again established on the earth, preparatory to the second coming of the Messiah. So I just, I just really like that. Yeah, the, that was, yeah, I, I actually recall um, some of, some of the, um, some of the introduction, like asking God, asking the Holy Spirit if the if the book is true. That um, that is a frequently like and you know an argument for like, hey, if you're uh, interested in in the religion, um, you should you should simply do that. And then also something that, that I wanted to add too, as I believe at the beginning of the Book of Mormon, there's like it's all it's like a semi legal document. Uh, I don't know if that's the best way to describe, it, but it, it's people who it's it's there's like I believe there's is there two witnesses or there's five witnesses. Um, maybe you could explain that. So basically, um, Joseph Smith, when he was the prophet, there was three like main people that were with him, Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, and, um, I forgot the other one, um, but there's three witnesses and they all saw the book of Mormon or they saw, they all saw the golden plates, which Joseph Smith wasn't allowed to show anyone, but eventually they were allowed to see it. So they all have their accounts in there. And then I think there's like eight other witnesses. And I think it's just like their testimonies of the Book of Mormon. Awesome. Um, and then I uh, moving on to our second question. Um, we know that, you know, there's the Book of Mormon. That's part of the, the scripture um, as long, along with the King James Bible, which we'll get to in a second. And there's also um, Doctrine and Covenants. Um, so maybe you could give us like a a two to five minute summary of the doctrine and covenants uh joseph feel free to uh jump in if you have anything to add so like so what exactly does the doctrine and does doctrine and covenants uh uh say and how was it came to be how did it come to be written as well um well the doctrine and covenants is a collection of divine revelations and aspired declarations given for the establishment and regulation of the kingdom of god on earth in the last days although most of the selections are directed to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The messages, warnings, and exhortations are the benefit of all mankind, contain an invitation to all people everywhere to hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to them for their temporal well-being and everlasting salvation. Uh, something I wanted to add really quickly, but, but I, that I find absolutely fascinating, is I, I was listening to a book on um, the Latter-day Saints movement, and at uh, one point it actually said um, that Joseph Smith was using a typewriter to type, and I, I would speculate that um, the, these revelations that he received and then wrote down with the typewriter, I'm assuming that's um, probably in Doctrine and Covenants because uh, he had already written the Book of Mormon by that time. But I find that fascinating that in Latter-day Saints theology, you have a prophet who uses a typewriter. That that is that to me is fascinating because if we're looking at you know if we're looking at obviously ancient Jude ancient Jewish stuff or ancient Jewish um, cultural context, they're going to be writing in Hebrew on you know parchment on scrolls. You're going to see the same thing with um, 
with, um, you know, cr- with early Christianity, New Testament era, apostolic age. They're writing in Koine Greek on, you know, on papyrus uh, codexes, basically. And then you jump for you fast forward all the way to the Latter Day Saints era, and and a prophet is using a typewriter. To me, that is a really fascinating uh, characteristic that I f- a characteristic that I find really fascinating because it kind of shows how far we've gone in, in time. Yeah. Um, and then Ryland, you or actually, yeah, Ryland, you want to ask uh, question three? Then no, you can ask four. Awesome. All right. Um, could you give us a two to five minute summary, um, just short, about the Pearl of Great Price and what it is, uh, what happens in it, what it means, why is it significant? Um, basically, basically, the Pearl of Great Price is like an extract from the Book of Gen- Genesis, and it has a little bit of history about Moses too. Um, and it includes the book of, Mar- book of Abraham and, uh, the Pearl of Great P- Price has Joseph Smith's translation of the book of Matthew. And I know we'll talk about that a little bit later. So I'm just n- not going to like add to that. Um, but the prophet Joseph Smith's history and the articles of faith are the last things in the book. So it has just like a little bit of everything. And like the articles of faith, they are, there's 13 and it's just stating like everything that we believe. So if anyone wants to know, like, Hey, what do you guys believe? They can just go right to the articles of faith and that just has everything. And, um, I like in the program price, their introduction paragraphs, um, there's one sentence or a couple sentences that says the Pearl Great Price is a selection of choice materials touching many significant aspects of the faith and doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. These items were translated and produced by the Prophet Joseph Smith and were and most were published in the church periodicals of his day. If there's one thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like some, one thing I want to add to that is what's really interesting about um about the Articles of Faith was, I think I mentioned this in, in our first episode, uh, it was, you know, written by Joseph Smith for a newspaper in, um, I, I'm, I, I don't know, it's either, I think it's Illinois, I'm, I'm going to assume it's Illinois, um, or it could be New York, but I think it's Illinois, but um, anyways, so, and what's also interesting about the Articles of Faith that I think I also mentioned in the first one is, um, your, is the lack of original sin as a doctrine, um, it says, I think, verb, I think word for word, it says, we believe that man will be, or men will be punished for their own sins or transgressions, not the sin of Adam. And that, that to me is, you know, fascinating because you can actually make a good argument, as I've said in the, in the previous one, that original sin is pretty much a product of, um, of Augustine's theology. I mean, you can find a passage in Romans that says, you know, people are born in sin, and then you can, you know, interpret that however you want. Um, I mean, what's really advantageous about having a church interpreting scripture is then we don't have to come um, read scripture and come back with like 500 different interpretations of the same passage um that is a that is a very um that's a huge benefit i mean i was thinking, I was thinking as an example um you know you have the catholic church uh the the pope the cardinals they can um tell people how to interpret the scripture and then same with the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints um the I would assume the, the the president prophet and the quorum of the twelve apostles, and they can say this is how um, we should interpret this scripture for this day and age. Um, yeah, and then um, Noah, did you do you want to ask the question about the King James Bible? Yeah, uh, could you guys give a two minute summary on the Bible KJV or the King James Bible? Um. So. Basically, the King James Version, I didn't get a lot into the history, like, of King James and stuff like that, but I just 
I just went from what I knew already. Um, but something there's two there's two sections like in the King James version, the Old Testament and New Testament. And there's something we read a lot. We get a lot of information from them. And the New Testament has information about Jesus Christ being born, his life, um, when he died, some of the stories that he teaches. And um, the and the Old Testament sure is stories about Adam and Eve and Joseph in Egypt and many others. So I think it's a little bit earlier time period. But like before, it's during the it's during the same time as the Book of Mormon, like around the same time. It's just in different places. Um, but both have the writings of old prophets and other people. Joseph, do you have anything to add? Uh, no, that's pretty good. Like two really interesting things about the King James uh, version of the Bible. Um, well, actually three. One is hence the name King James. Uh, is com- it was commissioned to be put together by um a guy named King James of uh, England, and this was the, this was the sixteen eleven King James version. Um, and this was the second interesting fact is this was the Bible that Joseph Smith and his family had at their house. Um. They have the, King, the 1611 King James Version. And a third really interesting fact, I actually got done reading, although I was actually listening to it, but I like to use the term reading because it makes it sound like I'm, you know, scholarly. I'm actually sitting down to open a book and strenuously read each word. But um, I was got done listening to a book today called um, Misquoting Jesus, and it's about textual criticism. What's really interesting about the King James Version is a lot of it actually comes from the a 12th century manuscript that was... Um, that was compiled in, well, the 12th century. And what's really interesting is the story of how that manuscript got put together is actually quite uh, fascinating because the guy who was putting it together, I don't recall his name, but he would he, he would basically put it together when he was traveling. And what's interesting is he's going to be traveling on a horse, right? So whenever a horse would, like, hit a bump or whatever, it just, like, the pen would, like, skew all over the place. Not that that really, not that that really affects anything, but I just thought that was, because you can obviously see, oh, yeah, there's a, a, like a line from the pen that's going all the way over there. That's not a traditional letter. You can just quickly fix that. But I think that's really interesting that this guy who was compiling this manuscript that the 12th, or that the King James Version heavily relies on, he was like doing this while he was traveling. To me, that's interesting because you're usually going to think of someone sitting down, which is true. He did do that. He did sit up, he did um, hang out at um, ho- hotels or quote unquote hotels, more like um, inns in those times and write it. But he also did it on horseback too, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, Rylan, you want to ask a question, the number five, this does relate to the Pearl of Great Price. It's like an extra question. Yeah. Right. So could you tell us, um, another quick two minute summary of the book of Moses? Um, uh, the book of Moses, Moses is, uh, an extract from the translation of the Bible. And as it was revealed to Joseph Smith, um, and it is compromised of eight chapters. What's really interesting is there's actually actually uh, Karina, do you, do you do you have anything to say about the Book of Moses? Um, I could add a couple things. Just that, um, the so in the first chapter in Moses, it talks about Moses and like I think it has like the burning bush, um, story and other things. Um, but the rest of the book of Moses, well, most of it talks about like the creation and Adam and Eve. And that's just something I noticed. My understanding is that you also get to learn about uh, letter to saints cosmology as well. Like I think the, the veil is mentioned in, in the book of Moses um, as well as like other parts of 
cosmology. Uh, what's actually really interesting is there are many um, apocryphal texts that are not included in the, uh, you know, the conventional uh, Bible, like the, um, like for example, there, there's a bunch of Jewish apocryphal texts, and there's a bunch of uh, Christian apocryphal texts. The most famous of the Christian apocryphal texts is most definitely the Gospel of Thomas, because it's it's kind of everyone knows it's a saint's gospel, but there's also a Jewish apocryphal text called the Apocalypse of Moses, and the apocalypse. There's also the Apocalypse of Abraham too. But what's interesting about the Apocalypse of Moses is that this is its other name is the life of Adam and Eve. And what's really cool is the Apostle Paul, when when he was putting together his um, letters, his theology was actually based somewhat on. Um, on the life of Adam and Eve. So you have this text that isn't included in the Bible that Paul actually used to write his epistles. I think that's fascinating personally because it's like you get to get a glimpse into what was going on when Paul was writing his letters. You can just think of it like he has this text that's not included in the Bible that he's using. It's a Jewish apocryphal text and then he's writing his letters. I think that's just cool because it's like a window into time. Um, maybe, uh, yeah, so Noah, do you want to ask question number six? Uh, sure. <clears throat> All right, so what is like a two-minute summary of now the Book of Abraham? Um, it's a translation of ancient records that have fallen into our hands, um, and it's from the catacombs of Egypt. And these writings were from Ab- Abraham while he was in Egypt, and they're called the Book of Abraham. They were written by him, and they are five chapters long. Um. I'm just going to add that uh, in like the chapters, it talks about his life in Egypt. In a few of the chapters, it talks about his life. And then it also talks more about the creation. I noticed when I was looking through the book of of Abraham Um, and it shows some really cool and interesting pictures and drawings that I'm pretty, I'm not sure, but I think that he drew that are in like the back of the book of Abraham. Yeah, Joseph Smith. Well, so what happened was the papyrus that he had it was part it was partially destroyed because of time, and he 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 like basically sketched in with um with with pencil um or whatever writing instrument he had like extra parts of it, which is cool. Um, now on to the last question about the canon of the Latter Day Saints. Um, Church and or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is um, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. I had no idea this existed. I heard that uh, in the last episode you talked about how he translated part of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, but what what exactly is the Joseph Smith uh, translation of the Bible? Like, how did it come to be, and um, uh, like, what are its contents? Uh, you can take this question. Um, okay, so from what I learned, uh, Joseph Smith was prompted to take some verses and a few chapters or a couple chapters from the Bible and change them a little bit, like fix them. And I think it's because from my understanding, um, a long time ago, uh, there were parts of the Bible that were taken and changed to like fit the needs of the people. So it was a little bit different. Um, and there were also some confusing things that needed to be kind of cleared up. And from I've seen some comparisons like, like of the actual chapter in Matthew to the um, or the verse in Matthew to the verse in Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith translation and how he translated it. And there are very minor changes, like in just in like really small words and stuff. Can you give us any examples of like what would be like a 
uh, side by side, like you have uh, the King James version of Matthew, and then you have the Joseph Smith translation. Um, I I can look. I'm not sure off the top of my head, but I remember looking. I remember looking at some um, a while ago, like that comparison, and I'm sure there's like just a few yeah i don't know any off the top of my head but there are just a couple verses that really changed a little bit and i honestly don't really know the purpose except to just clear up the verses a little i guess well the gospel writers actually actually did that they would do like really minor changes to text um in fact there are there's a even a string of of text in um in luke and, and, and Matthew, and it's like a 27 string string of words, and there's only like one or two words that are different um, that separates those two. That's kind of an extreme example of how similar uh, Matthew and Luke are in, in some places. But I mean, there's even a study um, that 71% of Matthew can be found in Mark. And that's that's really interesting because then you have these huge similarities between the Gospels, which leads people to believe that, that the... Um, that you know, uh, either that that they they use them as a source. You know, the you, you can you can either view this secularly and say they simply copied it, or you can view it religiously and say they the Holy Spirit, um, you know, uh, oversaw the process. But um, what's what's really fascinating is what he did with the with the translation is to me seems to be in, in some ways kind of kind of similar to how the gospel writers would basically use huge pieces of the other, the Gospels that preceded them in, in their Gospels with only changing a few words. I thought that was a fascinating um, comparison because I've been looking into textual criticism um, recently, so I thought that was something that was worth sharing because it kind of relates back to the canonical or the conventional New Testament. Oh, wait, wait. Yeah. Uh, is there a reason that they they uh, only slightly changed the, the wording? Because it kind of seems pointless. Like, what's the reason? Is it is there a, is there a specific reason that they change a couple words? Because I know they they keep the meaning mostly the same, but um, so from that it does seem meaningless. And I was thinking about that a little bit. And um, we were reading scriptures as a just like a little story. Uh, we were reading scriptures as a family one time, and my brother was just like reading a verse, and he said like one of the like a little word like of he changed it to two or he like read it wrong or like my little sister or something like that just like read a word wrong and my dad I thought it was interesting because my dad was like no it's of that the way you said it completely changes the meaning of the verse or the the way the verse is and I just thought this was really interesting so I think sometimes a little word or in like different languages sometimes a little word can like be so different and i was learning that a little bit at church today i guess like the word for there's like 12 different meanings in the in the dictionary or ways that you can use it so yeah yeah i mean writing something a little bit differently can 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 um change the the framing a, a ton actually what's really interesting about um the gospel the the other what's really interesting about the gospel of luke is the way that Luke sets up the crew, and Luke Luke shares a ton with Matthew. He shares a huge, like a, like I said before, there's there's almost you know verbatim um, comparisons between him and him and Matthew. Um, and there also uses Mark as a source too. But what's really interesting about how Luke frames the crucifixion, although he, although he's using almost 
or a huge portion of it's the same language, um, what he does actually is his goal of looking at the crucifixion is, okay, we have sent this man who, who is perfect in, in every way to be, to be crucified. We need to look at this, you know, traumatic, horrific event, and then we need to repent on it. That's how we're going to get salvation. Whereas other people like Paul and Mark and Matthew, they're more focused on the crucifix, the very act of the crucifixion as, um, as, as, as salvific. And what that really goes to show is that Luke was framing it a little bit differently. So he's able to appeal to people who, uh, he's able to appeal to both, you know, the, the, the Gentiles and the Jews, Gentiles who may have not even really known a lot about, um, blood atonement, um, in, in ancient Hebrew, um, theology. So I find that fascinating how you can basically just change a few words, change a few phrases, and then you get a completely different look at, um, at, at events that are, that are huge. Um, I find that fascinating. And I find that like a little, like a little bit of a, um, parallel between the Joseph Smith translation and, um, what Luke did. Yeah. Sure. No, that's awesome. I, th- I think, I think that was, I think that was a good question. Cause then like, you can see how just like a little bit can change, change a lot. Yeah. Um, hopefully I didn't talk, hopefully I wasn't too long-winded on that, but I think that was an interesting point. Yeah. Uh, Noah, you want to ask a uh, question number one for like the second portion of questions? Uh, yeah. Um, this is actually a really big, uh, interesting question because it's a question that I've wondered myself for quite a long time, but how are baptisms conducted in the church of Latter-day Saints? Um, <clears throat> baptisms are conducted by someone who has the authority, which would be them holding the priesthood. Um, this performed by being fully immersed underwater. This immersion is a symbolic of the death of a person's sinful life and is the rebirth into a spiritual life dedicated to the service of God and his children. It is also symbolic of death and resurrection. Those who are baptized enter into a covenant with God to take upon themselves the name of Jesus Christ, um, to keep his commandments and serve him to the end. Uh, Karina, you have any, you have anything to add? Sure. Um, so basically, uh, it, it can be a little different from other churches because I know some other churches you get baptized, like right when you're born. Um, but in our church, you have to be, you have to be eight years old or any other age above eight. And that's because you, when you're eight or when you're around that age, you start to, it's called like the age of accountability because you know, like right from wrong. Now, you know that better. And basically like the, the actual like process when you get baptized, cause I've been baptized before, um, of course. Um, but you, a lot of the times, um, so basically you go into the water. It can be any body of water, but usually it's just in the church, like baptismal font. And not every church has a baptismal font, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but you go into the baptismal font and then you're held like, I can't like show the other person, but you like hold someone kind of like that. And then they immerse you, like Joseph was saying, fully underwater. And then you're baptized. That's basically it. Is, is there like a specific way that the ritual goes? Because I, I, I was talking to my friend's uh, Levi, and he said that he saw a video of a Latter-day Saints baptism. And he said that it was a lot longer than a um, 
than like another um, type of baptism. Um, so I'm assuming that that it's the same as like baptizing them the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because that's in that's straight from the Gospels. But is, are there any other like um, procedures as well? Uh, well, basically, uh, I don't know if it's really needed, but like modern day baptisms, I because I recently went to my sister's baptism and several others, but you start and everyone just gathers in the baptismal room and then there's a prayer and like a baptismal song and then there's usually a couple talks one about baptism and one about the holy ghost and then right after that you um after like my after my sister learned about baptism and learned about the holy ghost um then she was baptized so taken into water and then she got out and got dressed while my sister my other sister was playing like um, peaceful piano music and everyone was just thinking about it. And then after that, like finishing it off, um, she got confirmed as a member of the church of Jesus Christ Live Saints, which is the next thing, the next question, I think. Um, and then the meeting kind of ends with another song and then another prayer. And that's usually how baptism things go modern in modern times. I don't think back then they really did that. I think they just like win large numbers and kind of baptize people because it was the beginning of the church what's really interesting about like full submersion baptism not just like not just like having someone sprinkle something on your head what's really interesting about that is there's a really uh, um, fascinating parallel between the the greek or the, the hellenistic uh, mystery religions at the time and uh, christianity um what's really fast what's, what's an interesting parallel is not only actually did the the there was a I use the term cult because they were that that's that that would be the proper term. Like we can just say you can just say religion. But there there was the one of the mystery religions at the time was the Bacchus um, mystery religion, and they also had baptisms for the dead. And then we'll, I know we'll get into that later. But what I wanted to say is in the Isis and Osiris mystery religion, full full immersion. You're going into the water, then you're coming out of the water. That was actually reminiscent of you dying and rising with Osiris. So it's really fascinating how. Um, at the same time, Christianity had kind of the same symbolism. You're dying with Christ and you're rising uh, with Christ as well. I thought that was interesting to um, note because you can provide like cultural context. What else was going on in the Mediterranean world at the time? So, yeah. Right. So speaking of baptisms, um, baptism, bat- baptisms for the dead are completely scripturally justified in Corinthians, but there's not any specific details on it inside the Bible. Um, so what does a baptism for the dead ritual look like in the Church of Latter-day Saints movement? Um, uh, Jesus Christ taught that baptism is essential to the salvation of all those who have lived on earth. Uh, many people, however, have died without being baptized. Others um, were baptized without, power, with, without proper authority. Because God is merciful, he has prepared a way f- for all people to receive blessings of baptisms. Of reforming proxy baptisms in behalf of those who have died, church members offer these blessings to deceased ancestors. Individuals can choose to accept or reject uh, what has been done in their behalf. These baptisms are performed in the temple. Uh, The New Testament indicates that baptisms for the dead were done during the time of the Apostle Paul. This ordinance was restored with the establishment of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
what's so fascinating about baptisms for the dead is is I, I just look at I just look at this and I'm like, this is so cool. This is amazing. This is totally in the scriptures. And like, why is no other church doing it? It's just it's just so cool. And um there actually is like one other church that does it. Um I think it's called like the New Apostolic Church or something. It's based in Germany. Um, but what's interesting is if you actually go to First Corinthians and you go to, there's a section, I don't know what the verses are, but it's called Practical Arguments, that's the title, and Paul is saying things like, um, if our mission is not true, then why are we, you know, going through the trouble of, of baptizing the dead, why are we always putting ourselves in danger, then he explains, like, an example of when he almost died or was severely injured, so I just find that interesting that, that that's right in the scripture, and it's very cool, and we're just not even doing it, and what's what's also interesting is the early church actually did do it, but they stopped doing it pretty quickly. But to me, that's like that's really cool that you can, in in principle, baptize people. Like, you can baptize people who have died by I guess being baptized on their behalf. So, like, is there is there how does the how does the ritual work specifically? If you can tell us that, like, does it look like a, a traditional baptism? Are you like baptized on behalf of of someone? Like, how how does that how does that work? Uh, yeah it's pretty much um well it's pretty much the same thing but in it's in the name of whoever is being baptized that is dead instead of like them saying your name it'd just be you and another person being um representing being baptized this yeah and um how the actual thing like how the actual thing goes basically is um is that usually we have a youth group or you can go as your with your family and um there's a baptistry and it's it's usually um underground level like the the font is underground level and that symbolizes something and there's also 12 um dang it, i forgot the word like oxen I don't know if it's oxen yeah. or something. Oh yeah. Um, and they're surrounding the font, like underneath it, kind of holding it up. And that symbolizes the 12 tribes of Israel, I think. And um, basically you go in there, uh, you get your names, you can bring them from home. And this is why we do family history work so that we can get names and see what work needs to be done for people. So that in heaven, like they can choose what they want to do. And um, we, we go and go to the water and it's just like a baptism where people, they like submerge you completely underwater. Uh, but it's actually, they say there's this um, small quote, like I baptize you in the name of the father and the son, like you were saying, kind of. And they say the name and then they dunk you and then you're back up and then they do another name down, up, down, up. So it's not, it's not like the song, prayer, um, talks. It's nothing like that. It's like just kind of a simple, um, you do the names and then you go out and then you get confirmed for all of those people. And then you're done and then you can go home. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, when I also want to use the term ritual, I know ritual has such a negative connotation, but I, I use the term um, ritual sim- actually exactly to how there's, there's things called the four C's of religion. There's like community, um, creed and cult like the term cult and ritual have just such negative connotations but from an academic standpoint ritual just means anything like an ordinance a sacrament um uh etc and then i actually forgot what in the four c's of religion cult means i i don't recall but um 
And uh, yeah, so question three. So you were talking about um, uh, uh, confirmation before. Um, and so what? It, how is confirmation conducted? And it sounds like confirmation happens like right after baptism. So maybe you could shed some light on that. So basically confirmation is when you are given the Holy Ghost and this happens for like living people as well as for the dead. Like they just say, and we're given the Holy Ghost and stuff like that. And priesthood holders just put their hands on your head and say a prayer. And they also confirm that you're a mess, that you're a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, I think getting confirmed is really cool because then in church, they're like our newest member because technically you're not really a member yet until you've been baptized and confirmed. So I always thought that was interesting, but they're like the newest member in our church is Bob Blunt. Usually they're like an eight year old or sometimes when people don't find the gospel uh, sooner, they, um, they get baptized and confirmed later on. But that's about what I know about confirmations and i think they've been doing it ever since like joseph smith and probably way before like when jesus was on earth i i think i i'm pretty sure they did it um they did they did they did this um at joseph smith's time and the reason i say that is because if we go back to um um the um, is it yeah it, it's i believe it's um the pearl of great price it's it, it was the articles of faith um and in the articles of faith it, it lays out the ordinances in which the latter-day saint or in which Latter-day Saints believe, and it says uh, we believe in laying on of the hands for the Holy the Holy Ghost, and that to me sounds synonymous with confirmation. I was initially like thought that was thought that was interesting because in you know in, in the Catholic Church you're confirmed with oil, um, which is which is which is interesting because um, oil being like anointed with oil. Um, it, I I don't I don't know if if you know like um of the of the Gnostics, but there was this um there was this this um what would be considered heretical sect well it's not a sect it was more like a movement of christians in the early days days of christianity and they um there was a certain um group called the valentinians and they would actually um before after someone had died they remember their religion had died they would actually like anoint them with oil so i i think that's fascinating because i i don't i don't i haven't really studied the history of the sacraments all i know is that they come they pretty much come from a guy named tertullian who was who was part of the latin church fathers but Given that the Valentinians anointed people with oil, that leads me to believe that that that, that anointing with oil probably existed um, in the um, in in the second century of the early church. But I understand that in the letter to saints, it's like it's like a different type of um, confirmation. You're not being anointed per se; you're being like having the Holy Spirit. And when we uh, we actually do use consecrated oil, but not for like it's for certain things. One is just uh, like blessings of healing the sick, which I've definitely gotten in my life. Um, and that's just when a priest holder puts her hand on your head, but they have the consecrated oil first. So I just think that's interesting. Fascinating. Um, and so maybe uh, Rylan or Noah, you could ask the fourth question. Um, what is the ordination process or ordination process to the uh Maki Sadok priesthood that was a, that was a great accent I, it was, I, that, that I, it? at first i thought i was polish so i had to look it up but it's apparently hebrew um yeah in hebrew it's uh Malki Sadok. yeah uh, it's melchizedek 
That's that I say. Um, um, through the authority of the Methodist priesthood, church leaders are able to guide church um, and direct the preaching of the gospel throughout the world. In the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood, the powers of godliness is manifest. Um, and that's in Doctrine and Covenants 8420. Uh, this greater priesthood was given to Adam and has been on the earth whenever the Lord has revealed his gospel. It was taken away from the earth during the great apostasy, but it was restored in 1829 uh, when the apostles Peter, James, and John conferred upon Joseph Smith and Oliver Cadre. The um, basically the Melchizedek priesthood you can get when you're 18, no sooner. Uh, you can get later, just like with baptism, no sooner than eight years old. But you can get after, in case you like join the church, you don't want to get the Melchizedek priesthood yet. But um, you have to meet someone like, and I was talking to my cousin who's uh over 18 and a couple other like men in my life, I guess, um, like family. And they say that you have to meet with the bishop of our, of our ward and then the state president, who's like the uh, leader over a few wards, like a stake. And um, then like a confirmation, priesthood holders put their hands on your head and give you the priesthood. And that's basically the, the actual ordinance. There's nothing too special. It's just you get the Melchizedek priesthood. And I think you're supposed to like follow um, different covenants and promises, just like with baptism to like, remember his name and stuff like that. What can you do with the Melchizedek priesthood? If you, if you have it. Yeah. So with the Melchizedek priesthood, there are a lot of things you can do that with the Aaronic priesthood, you can't, um but with your wrong priest you can do a lot like you can pass and break bread and stuff like that like do the sacrament um but with the Melchizedek priesthood you can give blessings and i think that's a, a really main one just being able to give blessings like baby blessings healing of the sick father blessings father's blessings like before school and stuff like that and the main one is blessings but i think there's also like um different church things that you can do like different church callings that you couldn't really you couldn't do without the Melchizedek priesthood I guess is what I'm trying to say yeah I have like two follow-up questions because that, that was really interesting you, we I think we, we definitely talked about this in the, in the first episode but like what are the um what are the layers of, of the priesthood because you mentioned the the Aaronic priesthood and then also um what are the different types of, of blessings yeah <laughs> 